you would, uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, and uh, I'm going to be reading from verses 27 through 42. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 27. Hear the word of the Lord. And upon this came his disciples, and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou? Or, Why do you talk with her? The woman then left her water pot, and went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I have ever done. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out from the city and came to him. In the meanwhile, his disciples asked him, saying, Master, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know of. Therefore, said the disciples one to another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said unto them, My food is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Don't say to yourselves, There are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already, to be harvested. And he that reaps receives wages and gathers fruit unto eternal life. That both he that sows and he that reaps may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that whereon. You did not labor. Other men labored, and you are entering into their labor. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they besought him that he would stay with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own words, and said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Amen. Amen. So, uh, so far in this conversation with Jesus and this Samaritan woman, we've gone from him asking her merely for a drink of water to a spiritual conversation that led to this woman's conversion. 
And now what we have in the passage, if you if you paid close attention, you, you, you'd, you'd see where John wants you to fix your eyes. So you have the first section really sort of like the introduction to this new scene, right? Of course, this is historically accurate. It's just terminology to help us think about the passage. So you have the disciples show up. And when the disciples show up, and when the disciples show up, uh, the woman leaves. So you have this introductory section. And then and she leaves. She goes to Samaria, speaks to the Samaritan. And then after Jesus finishes speaking with his disciples, then you go back to the Samaritans. We're, we, we've already been told that they believe, but now there's an amplification. And they believe because of Jesus' own words, and they make a testimony about who Christ is, that he is the Savior of the world, which is so early in his ministry. Others are not making these kinds of statements, so it's pretty amazing. So these two sections with the Samaritans and the Samaritan woman are kind of like the bread and the section where Jesus talks to his disciples right in the middle, that's like the meat in the sandwich. That's really what you have. And that's where John wants you to fix your eyes because if you understand that middle section, uh, the two sections that are on the side make perfect sense. Uh, you know, the technical terminology for that in literature in any kind of writing is called an inclusio where you have two sections that are similar there's some repeated terminology or maybe concepts and ideas that bracket what the author really wants you to fix your eyes on it's that portion in the middle where Jesus is discussing um, he's where he's making some things plain to his disciples and all of this, you, you, could, uh, you could take this section of Scripture then, so that's sort of the structure, and if you wanted to talk about the content of it, you could say that this section of Scripture really has to do with wonder or amazement, or maybe you can talk about the result of that kind of wonder or amazement and say that this portion of Scripture really talks about satisfaction, and ultimately the satisfaction of the soul. That is really what John is uh, trying to communicate to us. This is, what G this is what happens in this portion of Scripture with um, John. You could just kind of illustrate it this way by, by a figure of speech and maybe its meaning. When, when we say, well, we use this figure of speech, we say something like... Um, uh, you're, maybe you're standing over uh, some uh, some view and you say something like, I want to take in the view, or you take in some music. Or maybe you're reading the scripture and maybe uh, you, you say, your husband or your wife or your friend asks, what are you doing? Well, I'm just taking in the scripture. What, what do we mean by that? Well, what we mean is that we're trying to absorb it. We, we want to bring it into us. In other words, we want to receive some satisfaction because of the awesomeness, because of the wonder, because of the beauty, the color, the sound, the truth that's contained in what we're taking in. 
And this is what's happened with the woman. So she has this conversation with Jesus, and he reveals to her that he is the Messiah. Remember, that, that's the last part of the conversation before the disciples come and sort of interrupt what's going on with sandwiches, right? So they show up with sandwiches. Hey, Jesus, why are you talking to this lady? <laughs> but he just finished telling her that he's the Messiah. And <clears throat> uh, she leaves. And, and notice this. So first, you have the disciples. They're amazing. So verse 27. <clears throat> and upon this, it, it's almost, and upon this, the idea of sort of, as soon as he said it, his disciples were right there. They probably heard him say it to her. And upon this, his disciples, uh, came his disciples and marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet they didn't say anything to him. They, they didn't ask him any questions about this conversation. Now, of course, they, they marveled purely because of custom. That was really the issue. Men did not interact that way with women in that culture in, in public. You know, in, and even for rabbis, uh, there, there is a tradition that we've received that, you know, they wouldn't even talk to their wives in public. So they were taken back because he's having this conversation with this woman. One of the things that you learn, really, uh, when you read the Gospels, is that Jesus really had no concern for religious customs or for customs in general if they impeded the proclamation of the Gospel. He didn't care about those things. When it came to extending his hand to sinners. You know, there's, there's some broad application there. Not the main point of the passage, of course, but what are the things, customs, that we might have that keep us from this kind of attitude, right? Where there's this extending of the gospel to those who, you know, we wouldn't generally talk to. But we could leave that for another sermon. Of course, this flows from that statement at the very beginning of the chapter, right, that he needed to go through Samaria. He needed to go because he had to proclaim the gospel to this woman. He ha she had to be saved. So the disciples, you know, they, they wonder. Well, we need really to disabuse ourselves of, this, of a really bad view of the disciples. We tend to do that when we read the Gospels, and uh, maybe it's just me, but I don't think so, because you hear it in sermons, and you read it in commentaries, and, and, and uh, you hear people talk about this. If we were in their place, we would have been astonished as well. We would have acted the same way, because they were men of their own culture. And many times... We even do this now because we have our own traditions. We have our own tendencies. We have our own way of thinking. So we take up offenses against people. Like We get offended maybe or astonished or taken back by something a person does that really isn't a sin. It's just something that, you know, some, some quirk that we have. Yeah. And we have to really learn 
to uh, put our own traditions and our own customs aside, of course, when we read the scriptures, and then take it a farther step and make it applicable when we're interacting with unbelievers or for the sake of reaching the lost. Because this is what Jesus was doing. This is exactly what Jesus was doing. Now look at what uh, you see. You, it, it doesn't state it, but you see the same kind of uh, amazement. Or uh, one translation says shock. The disciples were shocked. But you see it in the woman. John doesn't tell you. He doesn't say, and the woman was shocked. But you see it. And this is how you see it. Look at verse 27. Oh, excuse me, verse 28. Then the, the woman then left her water pot and went away into the city. What'd she go to the well for? Water. She came physically thirsty to the well. She leaves spiritually satisfied. She's come to know the Savior. What does she do? She forgets about the water. She forgets about her thirst because now she has been satisfied. She is in wonder also. She is amazed. She, and now she can't contain herself. She has got to go tell other people. But think here. This, this, is, an, this is an amazing uh, description here of John. Because this woman was coming, remember from, from last week, and as we've been considering this passage, this woman had five husbands, she's an adulteress, she's living with a man who's not her husband, she's more than likely going to this well at this particular time in the day without the other woman because of her shame. She's not a woman who was a, a social butterfly. She wasn't walking around talking to any everybody, and it was because of her own shame. And now what does she do? When she is uh, told by Christ who he is, when she comes to know the Savior, right? And she, in a timid way, confesses her sin to him. I perceive that you're a prophet. You see something kindled inside of her. And that is zeal for, for God. She wants other people to come to know him. And... She is not at all anymore ashamed of her sin. She's not ashamed. She feels no shame. Not because she's shameless in a, in a bad sense, but because she knows she's been forgiven. And when we've been forgiven, we feel that joy. We want others to enter into that joy with us. So she just... You know, she's going to cast any kind of dispersions they may throw at her aside. Because now zeal for God has really eaten her up. And she's got to co-talk to others. I don't want you to miss this. So I'm going to state it now. Jesus is going to have a discussion with his disciples about food, meat, right? I have meat that you do not know of, right? Uh, remember, Jesus is exhausted, Right? They 20, you know, and 20, 40 mile walk. He's sitting in this well. He asks this woman for water. I'm certain he did want some water. He was wearied because of his journey, is what John writes. 
So he is exhausted, right? And uh, when his disciples come with food, it's like he's not interested in it anymore because he's been satisfied by doing his father's will. The woman came to the well thirsty, and she's been satisfied now because she met the Messiah. And she leaves. You see this zeal, right? Now, coming in contact with the Savior, she has this zeal for God. Jesus didn't have to command her. He didn't have to say, go therefore and make disciples of all the Samaritans, baptizing them in the name of the Father. And the... He didn't have to say that to her. Her, her, her. her zeal, her amazement, and her satisfaction in meeting the Savior was sufficient to drive her to tell others. And so you, we can say that after John, she's really the first uh, evangelist. But she does it in a very prudent way. She says to them, come and see. Not, I found the Christ. She says to the men of the city, and uh, of course men at that point in time around the city, they usually hung around the gates of the city or in a particular area of the city. And uh, so she comes to the men of the city. And, you know, you could probably imagine she's walking towards them and the expression on their face, you know, this adulterous woman, right? I hope my wife's not anywhere around here and catches me talking with her. But she has, she's, she doesn't care. She comes up to them and says, come and see. Come. And then she says, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Uh, they would have, oh, of course, that's hyperbole, right? He didn't say when you were three years old, you played with a little doll behind your mom's house and it was your favorite because it had red hair. He didn't say that kind of stuff to her, right? What he did was he pointed out her sin and they would have known exactly what she was talking about. And she is not ashamed to come to them and say, there's a man outside this city who confronted me with all of my sin. You see the, the prudence, right? A lot of prudence here. And she doesn't command, she doesn't say, she doesn't make any demands. She speaks about herself. And in essence, in a very, in, uh, with much candor, she is saying, repentance has come to this house. That's what she's saying. And now look at her wisdom also. She doesn't declare it straightforward, but she's not silent either. Her desire is to bring them to Christ. She wants them to come to the Lord. She knew that once they came, as one author puts it, once they came to that well to drink, they would also be satisfied. So she was willing to endure the shame, whatever ridicule might be attached, disbelieve, incredulity, you know, add the synonyms, right? She was willing to endure all that 
because she had met the Savior. And now she wants to bring others to meet the Savior. And she did not. What won them? This is a. What won them is that she didn't hide the fact that Jesus rebuked her for her sinfulness. Come, come see, come, come meet this man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And of course she poses it. She knows. He just told her, right? That was the end of their conversation. I'm the Messiah. But she asks in a very wise, in a very prudent way, but full of zeal, come and meet the Savior. Now we turn back to the disciples, right? So while the disciples are there, right, and they're unfolding their sandwiches, you know, they're getting everything ready, opening their sodas, and uh, all of this is going on in the kind of in the background, right? They don't know what's going on, and Jesus knows exactly what's going on. So they ask him, um, "Don't you want to eat something?" Which would have made perfect sense it's not that they're it's it's not that this discussion is happening you know five feet away from them and they're just you know sticking sandwiches in their mouth and they've got mayonnaise running down their beards uh they don't know what's going on and jesus was wearied from his journey and he had sent them to go get food so it would make perfect sense for them to say hey you don't want to eat anything um, th there's so much of God's sovereignly ordaining all things that come to pass in this passage that, that it's really amazing. It's, uh, he's tired. Really, he is. He wasn't fake tired. So he's really tired. He sends them to get food and he sits by a well and asks for water. And all of this is to set up this conversation with this woman so that she might be converted, so that he might instruct his disciples, and so that this entire city might come to know the Savior. It's pretty amazing. So they ask the question, and this is exactly the question that Jesus wanted them to ask. That's why he sent them to go get the food. At least I think that's what John is hinting to. So, verse 32, he, he says to them, I have more important business. Look at verse 32. And uh, I'd keep my Bible open more if the wind wasn't blowing all over the place. So I hope you don't take that as a, any sort of disrespectful. I hope you don't have a custom that would cause you to be offended because the wind keeps blowing my pages all over the place. So look at verse uh, 32. I have food to eat that you do not know of. I have food to eat that you do not know of. Of course, um, this is very similar to what Jesus says when he's tempted by the devil. But there he's speaking, of course, of the word of God. Job, in Job 23, verse 12, says something very, uh, very close to this. Look at what it's, uh, look at Job 32, 12. Uh, 
No, sorry, 23. Job 23. And neither have I gone back from the commandments of his lips, God's lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And here in Job and in John... And even in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus combats Satan, though the emphasis appears to be on the, the Word of God, what, it, what it's communicating is obedience to God. What satisfies my soul, Jesus is saying, is to do God's will. And the, don't miss that. Because the figure of speech changes, that's exactly what happens with the woman. Her, her soul has been satisfied. So she forgets the water. But this is exactly what Jesus is saying to his disciples. I have food to eat. I have meat to eat that you do not know of. Therefore his disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? It's, it's the same thing the woman said, right? Where are you going to get this water from? You don't even have a bucket, right? Jesus, what do you mean? You don't have a sandwich. Where's your sandwich? Right? What are you talking about? It's the same thing. And Jesus often did this. He took physical realities and he used them as an opportunity to teach spiritual realities. And that's exactly what he's doing here. Jesus said to them, now he's going to tell them, right? My food, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's why I came. That is what satisfies my soul. It's to do the will of God. His heavenly father brought him some food. That's what happened. Right? He must needs go through Samaria. Why? So he could satisfy his appetite for obedience to God. So that he could do the will of his Father. To nourish his own soul in doing the Father's will, he had to go through Samaria. Now, of course there's application for us in passages like this. But what is more important is think about the way that Jesus considers our own salvation. The, my being, me being saved, and you being saved, and other people being saved. It's satisfaction to his soul. Uh, I, I would prefer many times to either see ourselves in the disciples and to see ourselves in this woman than to see ourselves in Jesus because there is so much that we, you know, there are so many ways that we are unlike him. But we can learn from so much, if, so much from him if we see him as he is. We see him speaking this way. And my, my soul is satisfied in the redemption of sinners in doing and now of course this gives you a grand view of God the Father 
Because it's the Father who sends His Son to do this. It opens up really a beautiful view of the Trinity and God's heart and desire for the salvation of sinners. So, verse 33 and verse 34, um, Jesus says, my meat, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Many Christians are spiritually malnourished because they think they will find satisfaction by doing their own will. Right? So they give themselves to thousands of things. They may even give themselves to things that in and of themselves are not sinful. But they give themselves over to these other things, whatever they might be. And they find that they're never satisfied. They're always on Amazon buying something. Right? So, always buying something. Always uh, just uh, what describes them is some form of consumerism. They've got to be doing something. Because they are so dissatisfied. And they don't understand that true satisfaction, right? The satisfaction that matters is satisfaction ultimately of the soul. Right? It's, it's awe and wonder and amazement at what God has done for sinners in Christ. That satisfies the soul. That takes away the hunger. And then, of course, doing the will of the Father. So there's this looking to these truths that satisfies the soul. And then there's doing the things that please the Father, that satisfy the soul. That's why Paul, Paul, in uh, of course the Lord Jesus Christ, but uh, as we continue to read our New Testament, Paul exemplifies this when he says things like, "I will very gladly spend, and be and be spent for you." Why? Because that's what satisfied his soul. That's in Second Corinthians chapter twelve, verse fifteen. He he knew. The secret of contentment. Understanding the gospel of grace and doing the will of the Father. So Paul was always satisfied. And some of you are very dissatisfied. Maybe you've been dissatisfied for decades and you don't know why. And you try to, you know, satisfy yourself by looking at so many other things. Many things in, that in and of themselves are not are not sinful. Maybe it is sin. Maybe you're looking there. But Jesus here clearly is teaching his disciples, this is where true satisfaction comes from. It doesn't come from those sandwiches, fellas. That's not where it comes from. It doesn't come from that well where you drink water. And here he's talking about essential things. So you see how he, there is a very true sense where Jesus gives us some priorities here. I have these physical things that are very essential for life, food and drink. And Jesus is saying, doing the will of the Father will satisfy and, and is greater than those things. So he continues in 
verse uh, 35, he says, <clears throat> Don't say, there are yet four months. Then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look the fields at the fields, for they are white already for harvest. Don't, don't, be, don't be passive and say that the, these spiritual things, Jesus, can wait for later. I'm busy with this other thing. I'm busy with these other things. And uh, I can't give these things up right now. I have to finish, you know. I have to finish doing these things before I can concern myself with those things that are more, you know, that you're saying are more important. Jesus is saying, don't do that. The fields are white for harvest. And it, more than likely, right, he's saying this as the Samaritans are coming. So he probably looked to the Samaritans and maybe even pointed. <clears throat> Uh, so, you know, if they would have left those sandwiches there out in that hot sun, what do you think would have happened to those sandwiches after a 30, 40 minute conversation with some Samaritans? You think that you would want to eat that, those ham sandwiches? <laughs> Not, right? Soggy, nasty, right? It's, they're wasted, you know? But we have to remember. I think Jim Elliot put it very succinctly. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. These things you won't lose. Jesus is going to say to them, you're gathering fruit unto or for eternal life. Not that the fruit, look at the, um, he says it here. <clears throat> Verse uh, 36. And he that reaps receives wages and gathers fruit unto eternal life. It, it's not uh, for their eternal life, but that the fruit, I think the unto there, right? That fruit is unto, that fruit receives eternal life. Because, of course, the fruit in the immediate context is the Samaritans and the Samaritan woman. And Jesus is saying... Uh, don't waste your time eating sandwiches. There are unconverted people who need to hear the gospel. You see? Oh, or you can pick whatever it is, right? It's not just eating sandwiches. I enjoy eating sandwiches, but it's not eating sandwiches. What he's saying is the things that in and of themselves have nothing wrong, and they may be things that are essential, don't give yourself to those things because those things do not go into eternity. So, put another way, ex exert your mental, physical, financial, spiritual, and any other capacity so that people might be saved. That's what Jesus is saying to them. That is where we must exert our energy. And, and again, right, this is not a, um, uh, the, the purpose of Jesus' discussion with his disciples is not a guilt trip sermon. 
that you should uh, witness more. It's not the point of, but this is what Jesus is saying to them. But he's not guilt tripping them. What he's doing is he is helping his disciples set biblical priorities. Is Jesus saying to them, never eat again? No, they would die. Right? He's not saying to the woman at the well, bust that bucket and never drink water. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying to them is that there ought to be some priority in our life. And these things ought to be in the forefront of our mind constantly. So if you're, so if you're, uh, you know, everything is closed now, but let's say you were somewhere eating a sandwich and somebody said, oh, that looks really good. What is it? You wouldn't just, you shouldn't keep stuffing your mouth, right? You should, you could say, do you want half? It's really good. Have a seat. And my name is whatever. And where are you from? How how you get here? And are you a Christian? Right? Take every opportunity. It's, it's not about uh, guilt-tripping his disciples. That's not what he's doing. But he's teaching them spiritual priorities. That's what Jesus is doing to them. Or for them. And of course, in this conversation, he's doing it for us. We should have priorities. Priorities. <clears throat> so, the, the meat... Of course, immediate context is the salvation of men, but ultimately it's doing the will of the Father and completing the Father's work. Sometimes we uh, we're compelled, you know, uh, to complain, and there's a readiness in us to say things like, "Well, no, you know, nobody comes to church." Uh, um, you know, there aren't any young families or whatever, right? We, we say these kinds of things. That is met by Jesus. And Jesus would say, well, are you laboring in the field? Right there. If there are unconverted people, there's a field. Are you laboring in the field? Are you waking up early and putting on your overalls and your muck boots and getting your buckets and all of the equipment that you need? And are you getting onto the field and into the field to work? Are you depending upon the God-ordained means for your own personal sanctification so that out of that grace you might be able to communicate the truth of the gospel to others. Are you praying for those opportunities? Are you taking them when they, when they come? You know, some of us have, uh, you know, to use the illustration here, some of us have corn in our own house. I have six little ears of corn that I'm, that I'm constantly, Right, looking and, and working and uh, trying to harvest. And uh, some of you have uh, corn, right? And, and your family and your friends and your co-workers. And some of it has been hanging there for years. 
grab it. Just go over there and give it a good tug. You know, taste a piece of it. See if it's ready. We have to be willing to, to do these things. Of course, Jesus tells us here that there is a reward. The reward, of course, is not eternal life. It's not that you go to heaven because you uh, evangelize. And it's not that, um, you know, when you get to heaven, uh, you know, Peter doesn't say, how many notches you got on your belt there, buddy? How many people you... No, that's not, that's not even it. Right? That's not... Really, the, the, the driving force is doing the will of our Heavenly Father and the satisfaction we receive from that. That's the reward, the satisfaction of soul, the satisfaction of the soul. So John, um, chapter 4, verse 36, Jesus says, <clears throat> And he that reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit unto eternal life, that both he that sows, and he that reaps may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one sows and another reaps. Verse 38, I sent you to reap where you did not labor. Other men labored, and you are entering into their labors. What, what does, what's Jesus talking about here, about this issue of laboring? Who are the people laboring? Commentaries, pastors are all over the place. I think that there are some, uh, so in the immediate context, right? Who is laboring? Well, Jesus, right? He's, he's just been saying, my, uh, uh, I have food to eat that you do not know of, to do the will of the Father and to finish his work. He's just been laboring. He is wearied, but his weariness did not keep him from toilet but then there's the woman too who was thirsty and ashamed of her sin and she's out she's she hears the gospel and immediately is out there laboring and what is she doing she's bringing an entire uh, a 500 acre farm behind her to jesus and the disciples now she's been laboring too uh, but I would not discount either that uh, John the Baptist, because uh, uh, where John was baptizing is close to this area. The Samaritans may have heard John's preaching, and that's probably why there was some built-up anticipation in the woman. And of course, the, pro the, the, the prophets, and um, you have to adjust that, of course, because the Samaritans only accepted the Pentateuch. So... Moses labored, right? Because he wrote the Pentateuch. And of course, they, they distorted true worship. We saw that last week. But they did have the Pentateuch. And in the Pentateuch, there are uh, several places in uh, Gen Genesis chapter 49 where the promise is made that the ruler's staff will not depart from Judah. And then in Numbers chapter 24, and it's actually in ba Balaam's oracle. And in Balaam's oracle, what Balaam says is that from the tribe of Judah will arise one, and he will have dominion. He will have rule. He will destroy all of God's enemies, and he will 
rule and reign, what will he be? Well, he'll be a savior. He will save God's people from their enemy. And that's why they make the statement, this is the savior of the world. So, of course, you have that context. But then ultimately, of course, the broader theological context is God. That, uh, look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. So, th this person that's laboring, right? Well, look at uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. I think that this is a, a valid application. Look at what it says. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. According as He, the Father, has chosen us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. God has elected. God has done a work from eternity past and has prepared a people... For himself. The amazing thing about uh, declaring the gospel to unbelievers is that we don't save anybody. God, I don't save anybody. All I have to do is know the gospel and communicate it. I have to present Jesus to men and women as he is presented in the gospels. And then call them to respond to him as the Bible says. Then repent and believe in his name. That's it. God. So, so the, the worker in a close context there, Jesus, the woman, the Pentateuch, the scriptures, the word of God. But the larger theological context is, is God himself who has elected a people for himself. A people that he is going to call out of the world and call to himself. But a context that is more applicable to us, of course, is grandfathers, grandmothers, moms, dads, family members, pastors, church members, our neighbors, people uh, in this area who have been praying, who may have witnessed to you, who pray for, for us. All of those people were laboring for us. And then eventually, we were saved. We came to believe. So that those who reap and those who sow together accomplish the same work. You see this most clearly in 1 Timothy. Look at 1 Timothy. This idea of uh, sort of planting the seed, doing the work, planting, preparing the seed. Some water it. God gives the increase, this kind of idea. But, but look at uh, 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, <clears throat> it's second Timothy, sorry. Second Timothy, chapter one, verse five. Paul says this, speaking to Timothy. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in you also. So his grandmother and his mother were Christian women, believers, uh, 
Christian, maybe anachronistic if you apply to his grandmother, maybe his mother. But these women were women of the faith. They believed these things. And he's saying that there is a likeness between what was in them and what was in you. Why? Because they were plowing that field. They were working. They were praying. They, they raised him in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They spoke the word of God to him. They reproved and rebuked according to that standard. So then in chapter 3, verse 15, Paul can say this. In chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3, 15, Paul can say this. And that from a child you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation, which is in Jesus Christ. What were they doing? His mother and his grandmother, they were, they were, they were plowing, they were planting, they were watering, they were making sure that there was, the, there was the right pH balance in the soil. That's what they were doing. As I, as I thought about this, I, I remembered reading in Augustine, one, uh, a biography written of Augustine where, where he speaks of his mother. And he says this, My mother wept to thee. And he's speaking to God. He, uh, this, is in the con this is from his confessions, Augustine's confessions. So the confessions are sort of written in a prayer form. And he's praying, uh, but writing to God. And he, he, he's speaking to God and he says, My mother wept to thee on my behalf more than mothers are accustomed to weep for the bodily deaths of their children. Let him alone, um, um, so, so, so she had this, this uh, desire for her son to be converted. Great desire in her heart. And she wept for him. And then he writes, in light of his conversion, It is impossible that a child of so many tears should perish. His mother labored for him before God. And, and uh, there, there's, once he gets converted to him, it's, it's very evident that, of course, God saved me. But one of the instrumental means, maybe the most important one, was my mother and her labor for me. So when, when, when you have these, uh, the, uh, the expression, of course, Jesus uses, John chapter 4. He says, I send you to reap where you did not labor. Other men labored, and you are entering into their labor. There, there's always this working together. You don't know who you're talking to. Right? You, don't, you don't know how much this, this woman, this man, this, this child, whoever it might be, how many tears someone might have been pleading before God with tears on their face for this particular person. Or a pastor is praying for them or has shared the gospel with them. Right? And of course, that's the position that we should take, right? We should always be laboring for those whom we love. And uh, laboring is not always speaking the word of God. It can be praying for them. Praying that others would come and share the gospel with them. Praying that uh, they would come in contact in some way with the Word of God, sending them 
sermons to listen to and books to read and uh, doing whatever we can uh, that they might come to know the Lord. Now go go back to verse 36 because I, I, I purposefully skipped the phrase. And at the end of verse 36, Jesus says this to his disciple. And he that reaps and he that um, um, that both he that sows and he that reaps may rejoice together. And I think in, in all of those, uh, right, the, the close theological context, the woman, at the, the woman that he met at the well, that we, we don't even know her name, uh, when that village was saved, she rejoiced. But so did Jesus. And so did the Father in heaven. And so maybe other pious Jews that lived in that area and were praying for the conversion of the Samaritans. They all rejoiced together. It, it's this uh, individually rejoicing, but then there's this harmony of rejoicing. A, a Walt Whitman, he wrote a, wrote a poem, and the title of the poem is, I Hear America Singing. And in the poem, you have the uh, carpenters, the mechanics, the masons, the boatmen, the, all these different people individually singing as they labor, right? Uh, uh, moms, dads, not dads, but moms and, and wives uh, in the poem, all, all rejoicing, all singing together. And, and you get this, um, you, you sort of get, you get uh, several things, but one is joy in their labor. Right? There's this joy in laboring. Right? The next thing you get is that they're each, they're individually rejoicing in these things, in their labor. There's this happiness that comes from laboring individually. And that individual joy and the individual labor is together the singing of America, is what he calls it. And that's the idea similar to this passage. Where the Father, so this is the broad theological context, the Father elects a people for Himself, right? And in time, those people are saved. And then God enables and empowers those individuals to bring in a great harvest that He's already labored, right, in His work of election to place on this earth. In Luke chapter 15, verse 10, uh, Jesus gives this parable of a woman who lost a coin and then she finds it, right? And what does she do? She rejoices. She rejoices that she finds this lost coin. And turn there. Luke chapter 15. She rejoices that she finds this lost coin. Likewise, so in the same way that this woman is rejoicing, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. You know this passage, it, this, passage this passage doesn't say that the angels are rejoicing. 
it says that in the presence of the angels there's rejoicing. Whose whose presence are they in? God's. The idea that Jesus is communicating in this passage is that God rejoices. So so that as we labor on earth, we pray, we preach, we read the Bible, we raise children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, we reach out to our neighbors, we save money, we send missionaries to other parts of the world, we support missionaries in other parts of the world. We do all this work, and as individuals are laboring joyfully for God, we're all laboring together, and when they rejoice, we rejoice, and God rejoices in heaven. This joy and this satisfaction that we receive from laboring with God. And of course, this can be applied to ourselves. This is exactly what happened in heaven when you were saved. God rejoiced. There was joy in heaven. God greatly loves His people. It's, it's not a feigned love. It's not like, you know... Uh, God doesn't love us the way that we love Squatch, right? That's not how it works, you know? It's, it's not, we're not like, no, He loves us as, He loves us while we were still sinners. And then when He brings us into His family, He loves us as He loves His only begotten Son. Because it's because of Christ that we are made lovely. Because of His life, because of His death, and because of His resurrection. Verse 39, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on Him for the saying of the woman, which testified, He told me all I ever did. Right? She did not clean up her testimony. She wasn't, um, she, she wasn't graphic about you know, her sins, she, she didn't outline them, is what I mean, for them. But they knew what kind of woman she was. And she didn't hide it. I've been forgiven for everything I ever did. He knew and He forgave me. That means He can forgive you. So they believed because of that. So they came and they asked Him to stay. And then they said to the woman... Now we believe not because of thy saying, not only because of what you said, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. That, that, so they come to, to know Christ. They come, as uh, one author puts it, they come to that well, and they taste also, and they're satisfied. That is the goal, really, of... Uh, that is why Christ came into the world. Christ came into the world that He might save men. And the labor that He calls us to enter into as His people, it's a joyful labor, labor that we take part of together and individually, of course with God, by the power of the Spirit, instructed by the Word, that men might make this same confession. That is what we should be praying together. Oh Lord, use this church that men might come to confess as the Samaritans did that Jesus is the Savior of the world.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together and we thank you for the opportunity of uh, gazing upon the glory of our Savior. Help, uh, help us to continue to see him this way in the gospel. Lord, uh, help us to find satisfaction for our souls in Christ. The, the, the reason some don't and can't is because they're blind, they're lost. So Lord, would you please save them and may they see you as the Savior of the world, as one who can satisfy all of our deepest longing and desires, the way that he did for this woman, the way that he did, of course, for his disciples and for the Samaritans. In his name we pray, amen.